God bless you. Let's stand together. Let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. We're going to begin our Sunday school class at this time. Glad for all of you that are here. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's lift our hands and just worship God together. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be in the house of God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, to study your word and to look into it. We ask you, God, to touch our lives and hearts. Bless each and every one of us here today. We give you the praise and glory, O Lord, for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I uh, want to just put this one chart up to begin with here uh, this morning. This is the one we've been looking at. I'm not going to be teaching from it, but I do want to just pick up where we left off and we talked about how that the Bible prophesied in the second, second Thessalonians chapter 2 about how there would be a great falling away. Paul talked about it. And then, of course, it was also referred to other times in the scriptures as well. Uh, Paul even warned the church of Ephesus that there would be a falling away. And uh, we talked about all the different things that the church, the early church, started out following closely the teachings of Christ and the apostles. But over time, they began to adopt new doctrines, new theories, new beliefs, new things, and they began to fall away from the truth that they originally had. And they began to just sort of digress into a more of a pagan type of a religion and worship and way of life right on down until they were establishing Mariolatry, which is the worship of Mary, purgatory, justification by works, indulgences, which is buying trinkets and objects and items and most anything that would be sold for that, uh, that your sins might be short, your sins would be forgiven, or your time in purgatory would be shortened, or your or the time of your granddad in purgatory would be shortened, things like that, if he was already there, so, so to speak. And then finally, the infallibility of the Pope uh, was established, and then, of course, the Dark Ages came on. All this was a gradual thing, <clears throat> and when it had gotten to that place, the condition of, of Europe was very pathetic, very pathetic. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit. I'm not going to read much scripture, if any at all. I just want to talk to you a little bit. And if you, if you will allow me, I want to talk to you from my heart. And I'm just going to talk from my heart here today about how things begin to develop in that period of time and how they had reached into this dark age type uh, era of time. Uh, the, uh, the Vatican had become excessively wicked. Uh, and the people knew that. And they were appalled themselves at it. But the popes, it became a power, a power thing with them. And uh, they finally got to the place where there were families that was controlling uh, the Vatican. And the families would struggle among themselves. They would bargain. They would uh, uh, you know, give gifts to each other to back off and let one have the preeminent preeminence. And then they would be elected. And when they would, they'd take advantage of their positions and they would make alliances with certain kings of different places and so forth. And all of this began to develop. And uh, it rocked along that way right on up until, in fact, I could tell you some things. I have a book called The Dark Side of the Papacy. And uh, it is stories about popes and the things they did. And when I, if I were to tell you, you wouldn't believe it. You would not believe the 
the atrocities that were committed by many of them. When years ago, I was talking to an attorney and uh, over in St. Petersburg, and he was a Catholic, and I said to him, I said, you're a Catholic? And he I said, yes. He said, yes. I said, and uh, I said, you, apparently, you know, you're an intelligent man and everything. I said, you know the history of the Catholic Church. How can you be Catholic knowing their history? And he said, I said, I mean, they were such wicked people. How can you say that is the church of the living God? He said, the reason that I believe it is, is because if it was not the church of God, God would have destroyed it long ago. And so he allows it to exist because it's his church. <laughs> so so it, as wicked as it is, it's like saying, oh, it's all right, it's my church, you know. So they, you know. So anyhow, this was his attitude. I guess this attitude of many who stand in that kind of position who have knowledge of these things. Uh, there is one case, and I won't go into detail on this, and this is gory, but there is one case where that two popes were, I mean, two cardinals were at it with each other. And one of them got in to be pope, and when he became pope, he really, really gave the other one a hard time and just did all kind of things against him and worked against him and so forth. Well, in, in time, he died. And like say, about maybe seven, eight years, 10 years, he died. They usually ran around 10 years. And then he died, and the other one came, became the, the pope. And after he became the pope, then he had the one that had died, had his body dug back up and dressed him up in a pope's clothes and brought him into and put him on a throne and then had a trial and this this pope was dead and he was on that throne and they had a trial and he brought all the accusations and all the accusations just a regular lawyer's thing and all the people there and everything were forced to be there and so forth and this dead pope that had been dead for months uh, now was sitting in this uh, in this chair and he tried him gave him a trial about how bad a guy he had been and finally said and your sentence is that you're not to be buried but you are to be burned to death your ashes and so forth and you are to be excommunicated from the church and so he pronounced that judgment you're excommunicated and then you're you're to be burned to the ashes and so that was what they did with that guy when they got all through with it i'm just telling you of the of, of the craziness and many horrible things that went on and the common people said, well, I guess this is the way, this is what Christianity is all about, you know, and they had nothing to go by because eventually the word of God had been taken out of their hands. Uh, the word of God was held to be in Latin and so when Latin became somewhat of a, not necessarily a dead language, but nearly dead, and uh, you had the Italian language, the French language, the German language, Spanish, and you had all these different European languages and so forth. People, the common people spoke those languages. They did not know the Latin. And in the Greek, in the Greek side of it, they, had, they, they spoke in the Greek. And, uh, and so they said, unless it's in the pure language of either Latin or Greek, depending on whether you were in the Roman Catholic or the, the Orthodox Church, you were, unless you were in the pure language, it was not infallible. So you can't trust the word. And so don't worry about it, people. We will tell you what it means and everything. You know, we'll tell you. We study it and everything. We will tell you what the word means. So the people had to trust the clergy to tell them what the word of God meant. So they had nowhere to turn to. They just simply looked at that. And this is the way that it rocked along. 
and was that way for some time. Uh, I'm going to talk to you in a few, in a little bit here about the uh, beginning of the Reformation, how it started, and so forth. Uh, this is another chart that I'm going to refer to. This is one where that it shows more of the coming out of the Dark Ages. Dark Ages being down here, and then the steps of what happened, justification by faith that have worked, so forth, and different religions and denominations, how they introduced, introduced a new understanding in the scriptures, and how that they begin to work themselves out, and they became the protest movement, Protestant. The word protest, Protestant means protest. So they protested the Catholic Church. This over here shows you a real brief falling away that we had on the bigger chart, the other chart, and so forth. And then it came into the Dark Ages. Now I want to talk to you about this period of time here in the Dark Ages a little bit because it's a very interesting time. Uh, 1492 was a very pivotal date in history. Most of us know 1492 as being the date that, that Columbus sailed the blue. Remember that? You know, 1492, Columbus sailed the blue. It was the year that Columbus uh, went to the king and queen of Spain, which was Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. Spain had been two nations. They had been two nations at the time. Uh, king Ferdinand was the king of one part of it, and Queen Isabella was the queen of the other part of it. They were two different nations. They got married and they united their kingdom together and made a unified Spain. So Spain became a great and a powerful nation in 192. Well, it didn't happen in 192, it happened about 180. And, but they had come together and so here they had rocked along. So in 192, Columbus went there and saw Isabella and Ferdinand and said, we want you to you know, sponsor our trip across the Atlantic. Now, I'm gonna show you a map of this. this doesn't sound like it has anything to do with the spiritual religious side, but actually it really does. This is a sort of a map of, uh, I'm going to zero in on this a little bit where you can see it better. Yeah, see, let me see, let me get it like this maybe. I want to get it on this, uh, this western side of it here. Maybe you can see it. I'm just trying to make it where you can see it better. All right. This is, uh, this is Europe that we're looking at here. And I'm pointing this out because Columbus in reality was from, from Italy, but he went over to Spain here. Now along this coast here, this is Portugal. And so most of Spain's shipping uh, that went anywhere in the Mediterranean Sea or out into the Atlantic uh, came out from this side here and they would go through the Gibraltar Straits right in here, and they go around, and they would uh, sail, and, and they would, you know, this is uh, England, and uh, Scotland, and France is in here, and uh, Germany is over here, and this is Norway, and Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, and they're all right in there together, and so forth. And so all of this had come under the, the authority of the Pope, and was now part of the Catholic Roman Catholic Church. And uh, in 1492, the Spanish, I mean, the, uh, in Spain, there was a couple of things that happened, not only the sailing of the ship and going to, to America now by Columbus, but another thing that was developing 
was that the Muslims that were in North Africa, all across here, this had become all Muslims, had crossed the Gibraltar and they had gone into southern Spain and they had begun to occupy that area and as they did, they continued to push north more and more. Now this is very characteristic of the Muslim religion. They always are pushing further inland and wherever they get a foothold, they push into it. Uh, they, had, they had done the same thing over here when they came from per Turkey over into Macedonia and Greece. Uh, what was called at that time Constantinople, now it's called Istanbul, is part of Turkey. It's the capital of Turkey and it's right in this little area right here. Uh, they, they continued to push there. Uh, I was in this area not, not few, but a few years ago and uh, the, the Orthodox uh, the Orthodox people, the, the Greek Orthodox, they tell us, they said the Muslims are always pushing. We have to stand firm all the time. That's almost like our, what we do. We stand against it and everything. Uh, my son and I was over in Thailand. We saw the same thing in Thailand. In southern Thailand, the Muslims have moved into the southern part of Thailand in a little peninsula that runs down south. They come across in, from Malaysia. Malaysia is Muslim. So they come across and, and they constantly are pushing north so the, of course, they're Buddhists over there. And so the Thailand people are dealing with this. Well, this happened back, uh, you know, 500 years ago, six, what is it, 600 years ago, whatever, five and a half years ago. Uh, it, it happened here in Spain and they had continually being pushed in there and they built some beautiful buildings and things and those buildings are still there because Spain never tore them down, never destroyed them. And so they, uh, they got up in that area. Finally, under Isabella, and, 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 uh, and uh, uh, Ferdinand, thank you, under Ferdinand and Isabella, they began to say, let's drive the Muslims out. Now listen closely on this. Let's drive the Muslims out. So they fortified themselves and they drove the Muslims back across the Gibraltar Straits, back into North Africa, and it remains that way to this day. However, when they got all through driving out the Muslims, they said, now we want Spain to be a Christian nation, okay? And they looked around and they said, you know, the Jews hold a lot of power in this country. And the Jews have sort of taken over. And let me say this, folks, wherever the Jewish people were scattered, God always blessed them. He always blessed them. And there were many Jews that had eventually settled in Spain. And over the years and over the time, God had blessed them, prospered them. They had become, you know, well off. They had business owners. Uh, you know, they were doctors, uh, whatever. They held uh, good positions in life. And so they said, while we're at it, let's make all of Spain a Christian nation. So let's, let's drive out the Jews. But what we'll do is give them a chance to recant. Now, this is a, a real notable thing in history, and the Jewish people are very much aware of this. Most all Jews are aware of 1492 in Spain. What they did, they told the Jews, they said, you must change your religion to Christianity or you must leave Spain. Take your pick. And the Jews said, we don't want to become Christians. They said, no, then you must leave here. So the Jews had a choice. Either they recanted their Jewish faith, become Christians, or they had to leave Spain. And so they began to uh, say, well, and most of them packed up and, 
They had to leave everything behind, all of their wealth, all of their businesses, all of their houses, their homes, everything they had. And they had to pack up and leave. They went to France. They went from there to France. They went to England. Uh, they went to uh, uh, Belgium and Holland here. They went to Germany big time. And uh, even into the Scandinavian countries here, but mainly this area right in through here. That's why in 1930s when Hitler was rising to power, Hitler said this to the Jewish people when he was coming down on them. He said, you are strangers here. You came here 400 years ago. He knew when they came, but that's when they came. They came there around 1500, and it all started in 1492. He said, you came here 400 years ago, so you don't belong here. You're not one of us. And so this is what happened uh, under Hitler and in, uh, in that we know of prior to World War II and then during World War II. And so, but this was when it happened. Now, many of the Jews said, no, I think we're going to stay. We will recant because we have our homes. We have our fat shops. We have our factories. We have our jobs. We, uh, kids are in education. Uh, we're going to stay here in Spain and we will change into Christianity. Well, they said, okay, fine, good. But then many of those Jews says, we will say we change, but we won't change. We will still be Jews and we'll maintain our Jewish way of life and our Jewish worship secretively, but we'll stay in Spain. Many of them converted. We had a couple came here uh, in our church, was in our church here, Apostolics, uh, several number of years ago. And uh, he said to me one day, he said, are you familiar with the Jews, Jewish persecution in Spain in 1492? I said, yes. And he said, my family was from that. And he said, they, were the, they converted to Christianity. So my family, were, I'm actually Jewish in nationality, but we converted to Christianity way back there. And that was the reason it was based on that. And I was very familiar with what he was telling us. But uh, the ones who said, we will convert, but will not, they pretended to be Jews. Now, the Jewish days began at sundown on, on each, each day, and the Sabbath begins on Friday evening at, sun, at sundown. Not sundown, but at, uh, at dark. And the way you tell dark is that you would go out, and when you can see three stars, that means the new day or the, the night is, is there. Uh, when that day is over with and you want to count and figure out when the next day is, you go out and you count. If you can see three stars and you can count three stars, then you're into the new day. And those Jews had those balconies. They had those little round balconies and they would walk out and they would look up in the sky like this. And the Spanish began to pick up on that. And they said, they're looking at the stars. They are following the Jewish tradition because they are keeping the Sabbath. And so what happened then, they started looking, went on a witch hunt, and they started looking for Jews who were actually being Jews, but saying they were Christians. And this was the beginning of what was called and later developed into a big thing called the Inquisition. And this is where they would torture, and they would make them recant. They'd put under a lot of torture. They would persecute them. And they began to persecute these Jews immensely like this. This was in 1492. And so the Jews came under a lot of persecution. That same persecution would eventually carry over into the Protestant world by the Catholic Church and, and be followed up not by Ferdinand after he had lived out his life and, and then Isabella died and then about two years later Ferdinand died. And then uh, there was Charles, uh, Charles V, I think it was, 
who came on the throne, and he was a big time in promoting and pushing the Inquisition and making everybody become Catholics because there was beginning to be a lot of unrest in Europe because of the sins and the frolicking going on in the Vatican. Now, let me tell you what was happening in 1492 also. Everybody still with me? We go back to Rome, okay? In Rome, there was a new pope who had come into power. He was actually Spanish. He was not Italians. A lot of the Italians didn't like him because they called him a foreigner. And uh, he had become the pope, and uh, he was a very wicked guy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and it's all history. You can read about it sometimes. It's not a big secret. Even the, even the, Jew, the, the, the popes all know that. But uh, anyhow, from 1492 to 1503, 11 years, he was the pope in Rome, and he had a brothel in, his own, in the Vatican. And he had all these prostitutes there. And he'd have his friends come in, and they'd all have big, big parties, and, 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 I, and I don't have to describe it all. They had everything you could imagine that was violent and sinful and corrupt, and it was a mess. And, uh, but there was no fear of God. It was like, we are God. We're the vicar of Christ. You know, we are next to Christ, so whatever we say, it's like this is God's will. This is God's way. And so consequently, they, they, they just did all kind of things. The people became very unhappy. They became very dissatisfied with it. A lot of the cardinals were disgusted. But uh, this pope, uh, he, he was Alexander VI. That was the, the name that he gave himself. And for 11 years, Alexander VI ruled. He had illegitimate children. He must have had about eight of them. And, he, and they were growing up. They became, while they were still teenagers, he was giving them high positions in, in the government and everything. Made one a cardinal when he was only about 16 years old. Made him a cardinal. And uh, just uh, things that went on and on like this. That was, uh, and then all of this, all of this, all of this sex stuff going on in the, and, and no regard openly, uh, try to keep it a secret, sign laws because Pope's word was infallible. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? The debauchery that went on and was, was going on at that particular time. In the meantime, in the meantime, back at the ranch, <laughs> there is a young priest that is growing up in Germany by the name of Martin Luther. And Luther was born, I think, in 80, 1483, I believe, his birthday. And uh, along about in that time, uh, he began to do some soul searching, and he wanted to get really close to God. He's very intelligent, very smart. And he wanted to get close to God, and he, was, he lived in Germany. And so in his efforts to try to get close to God, he decided that he was going to go to Rome, the holy city. Now, in Germany, they looked at Rome as being the holy city. If there was any place in the world that would be holy, it would be Rome, right? And so he said, I'm going to make a pilgrimage to Rome. So in, uh, in, in about, uh, I think, 1507, Martin Luther is about 25 years old at this point. Uh, 1508 it was and he went to Rome and he went down there with the anticipation of you know getting in touch with God and feeling God and getting some spiritual direction and when he got there he saw all of this debauchery he saw all of this wickedness in the meantime the Pope had changed that Pope 
Alexander VI had died and a new one, Julius II now was on the throne. He wasn't himself as wicked, but Julius had made the decision that he was going to build the, the St. Peter's Cathedral with a big dome that's there to this day. And if you've ever been there, it's one of the most magnificent structures you'll ever see on the face of the earth. It really is. It's amazing. Having said all of that, it cost a big price for them to build it. So Julius said, in order to bring credibility back to the Vatican, I'm going to build this big thing, and he needed money to do it. He had Michelangelo doing paintings. He had Leonardo da Vinci doing paintings and doing sculpture work and many others as well. And... Uh, Raphael, and they were all doing all of this beautiful work for him, and he had to pay them, and they had to have money. So he began to have a big indulgence program, especially in industrial cities or countries, rather like Germany, France, uh, Belgium, uh, even England, wherever he could, and he began to do all of this. And so he was raising all of this money. Well, when Luther, at the age of 25 now, when he went to Rome and he looked around and he saw the debauchery that was still in effect being that was there. It hadn't changed that much. And he began to see how sinful it was. He went into a state of depression, went back to Germany, went into a monastery, and he spent two years in prayer, soul searching, finding, trying to find God. Lord, where are you in all of this stuff? The thing about Martin Luther is that he, under, he, he, could, he knew Latin. He could read Latin. He was a priest. Also, he's a very intelligent guy. He understood languages, other languages, and so forth. And as he began to read the scriptures in the Bible, he said, man, has the Catholic Church ever gotten, he didn't call it Catholic, that was his church. That, to him, that was the only church. Have we ever gotten off track? And so he began then to make a big change and do things differently, and he began to teach some things, and then in uh, in, in 1517, don't ever forget this date, 1517, October the 31st, All Saints Day, Martin Luther went to the church of Wittenberg, Germany, where he was in the city of Wittenberg, went to Wittenberg, Germany on the door, and he nailed his 95 theses on the door. I have got, uh, I've got these 95 theses here. I'm not going to read them to you. You don't want to hear them. We had all morning and evening, I guess I could. But anyhow, he, this is a copy of all the, in, in English, of course, you know, the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed on the door, claiming indulgence was wrong, purgatory is wrong, infallibility of the Pope is wrong. And he was very bold on that, and he began to proclaim that. And the German people began to listen to him. And Luther began a change, and he says, it's not justification by works it is justification by faith we are saved by faith and not by works and so consequently he began to change him because they were saying if you buy treacles if you will you know do so much work for the church uh that you'll get short and you'll get it'll take away sins and it seems to me from what i have read in history that the common people were plagued with the feeling of how do i get rid of the sins of my life these people struggled with that. They, the monastery idea came and developed because they felt like they had to suffer and they had to go through things and they began to try to make themselves suffer just to get some kind of repentance or penance, as it was called. If you ever look at a Catholic Bible, 
and I used to sell Bibles years ago when I was building a home missionary church. And I used to sell, I'd have Catholic Bible as well as King James or any of the others. And, uh, and I would, as I, as I sold them and everything, at nighttime I would study it. I'd look at it and read it and study it and everything. And Acts 2.38 in the Catholic Bible does not say repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says do penance, do penance and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's still there. I'd show many Catholics. I'd say, here's Peter's message. You know, Peter's first pope, right? Well, here's his message right here. He says, you know, do penance and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I'd always use that sometimes to show the Catholics. But I'm just trying to tell you here how that in that period of time, uh, the, the Europe became a mess. And Luther says, I, I've got to get it. So, so he nailed that on the wall and, and uh, began to confront the Catholic Church. And he began to teach at a university. He was, a, he had, he was also a university teacher. And he began to teach on, first of all, he, he taught on uh, uh, physics and other things. And then he began to switch almost totally to the religious part of it. And as he did so, he began to change the hearts of Germany. They'd come from all over Germany to hear him. From Germany, it began to spread into other countries, especially the Scandinavian countries. And he went into the Scandinavian countries. And I'm just telling you all of that to tell you here that this man by himself, he began to say, I'm going to try to make a difference. Now, let me just say one word to all of us here today, folks. <clears throat> I believe in my heart that America is entering into a, uh, we're going to enter into a dark time spiritually. Uh, I don't know how much you were aware of this movement that's going on that's trying to push uh, this gay, gay and lesbian stuff into our schools. They're having a meeting this Tuesday, the school board, whether they are to adopt a resolution that we were able to defeat last week, you know, in the, at the city council. And everything, we being the, the Christian community and everything. And, and uh, I'm just telling you that because that is an ongoing pressure and push to change everything. It, it, it won't be long until there will be no men and women's bathroom. Uh, it'll all be unisex. It, it, it's, it's a matter of time. You might as well get used to it. It's coming. I hope not. I'm going to fight it. And, and so, but I'm just saying this is what they're pushing for. Uh, they're pushing for the right for a teacher to tell a child, your child, I'm serious, I'm very serious. My daughter is a principal, so I know she's a principal of the elementary school. I know from that end of it, what's, what's coming down the pipe, everything. But a teacher can tell a child, you may be a boy, but actually inside you're a girl. And uh, you, you really are a girl and, and really convince that. I heard a teacher down here at the city council, you know, she was a teacher in one of our schools and she had a husband at home, he was a woman. <laughs> wasn't he, wasn't he, it was a she. Her husband was a woman at school. And all of her children, of course, they were all, they're all mixed, mixed up. They're all lesbians or whatever, the children, the girls. I mean, it was a mess. It was just a, a really a mess that her family was. And she wants to be able to be, feel very at home in the school system and all of her family and all of her kids by making everybody else call to come around to that. It's not just accepting it. It's like you not only accept it, but you accept our way of life in your life. And, uh, and if you don't like it, we will sue you. And they're setting it all up, of course, where they can eventually sue churches. You know, we, this church is a big giver. As you know, we, we, well, we feed over 800 families a week now. 
free. We just we have a place here that we feed them. Uh, 800 families a week come to uh, come to us, and we give them food, and we're able to maintain that by the by the grace of God and the goodness and donations and people that give and so forth. And no, nothing's ever asked of any of us, but uh, anyhow, the helping hands thing. We not only that, but we have places like Haiti and South America and Central America, and even people out tornado victims out west. You well know that. I don't have to tell you all about it. We've taken semi truckloads of food out to, to Oklahoma here some time back. I'm just telling you here that we do that. But the money it takes to do that, if we had to enter into lawsuits and have the and to say, no, we're going to fight this by lawsuits, it would zap a lot of the money from the church that we need to be able to help people and to do the work. And that they don't care because they want their way and they're pushing it. But that's coming down the pike at us. That's why we have to be aware of it. And I'm just saying this to all of us here today. This is why we have to stand up. And I, I say this about Luther. This man had courage and he had the courage to stand up and declare his truth, put his life on the line. At one time, they had to whisk him away and take him into a castle in the Black Forest of Germany uh, to a friend of his that had a castle there, hide him away there and because they were trying to get to him so they could take his life. And uh, I'm just telling you here, and while he was there, you know what he did? He translated the Latin, the the, the Bible that was in Latin, he translated into the German language. So that when he got all through, amen, he had language written for the Germans, for the Germans to be able to understand the word of God. At the same time, John Knox was doing the same thing in England, amen. And he was, he was translating the Bible there. At the same time now, falling behind him was John Calvin, who was from France. And John Calvin began, he broke away from the Catholic Church. John Calvin told Luther, you don't go far enough. He said, you say that, uh, you know, you can't do this, can't do that. He said that transubstantiation stuff about communion is, uh, is, is, is the body of Christ and the blood of Jesus, literally, and, uh, and so forth. He said, that's not true. It's for a memorial, is we do it in remembrance of him. And he was, he was locking in on the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and he was telling John, Luther, well, Luther never changed. Luther said, I can only deal with one thing at a time, you know, one, whatever I can deal with. But anyhow, uh, Calvin took it a little bit further. He pastored a great church in, uh, in, in uh, uh, Sweden, in uh, Switzerland, in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. He had that big church in Switzerland. The whole city of Switzerland was, uh, was Luther, was, was the Presbyterians. He was the founder of the Presbyterian church. So I'm just telling you all this. Zwingli was another one. He came out and he began to oppose and, and, and the Catholic church and began to fight and stand up against, uh, against some of these things. I'm just telling you here that these people begin to take a position. And little by little, folks, and I'm going to move the map now, that they begin to bring in new concepts. Uh, and I'll just mention this. John uh, Luther brought in justification by faith. We're saved by faith, not by works. Uh, he brought in, then there was Calvin who brought in, the, who was the founder of the Presbyterian Church. And he said communion was a memorial. It was not done that you have to have Christ in you by doing it. Uh, and so forth, and he referred to the scriptures and so forth. This is all Protestants, of course, adopt this. Some uh, Protestant churches uh, keep communion very religiously. Every Sunday they have communion. Uh, many of the others do not, and so forth. 
And then there was a Congregationalist who was brought forth by Robert Brown. And he said, there should be a separation between church and state. You know, you, you, the, the state should not control the religion and uh, or the religion control the state like uh, so much of Europe is today. We were in Belgium here, uh, my son and I were doing a conference over there several years ago, and they told us that 3% of all the taxes in Belgium goes to the Catholic Church to support the Catholic Church in Belgium. Because they say, you know, but that's not the case here in America. Aren't you glad of that? Every church, you know, stands on its own feet. And so it's, it's a separation. And the separation of church and state is a good thing. It's a good thing because the state can't say to the church, you do this, you do it this way, you do it that way, you do it this way. Otherwise, you're out. And if you get one person in power, then the whole country has to go a certain way. You get somebody else in power and it goes another way. And it'd be, you know, so separation of church and state was a good thing. And it came about uh, whenever the, uh, the uh, congregationalists came along with uh, Robert uh, Brown. And then in, in 1609, the Baptist movement began and uh, with John Smith in Holland and finally America. And he introduced water baptism by immersion. He said, we have gotten away from immersion. We're not baptizing uh, people in it, but we're just sprinkling them. That's not the way the Bible was. And so he says, we've got to start immersing people. They said, you mean we have to get wet? You have to get soaking wet? Yeah, he said, that's the way the early church did. You know, and he began to preach that. And they said, well, I don't want to miss heaven. It's, you know, if it's just getting wet, it's going to do it. He said, I'll be, you know, and so people started getting rebaptized. And so they started getting, and so little by little, you begin to have a progression here. The Methodists brought about holiness. John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, they were from Oxford University. While they were still students in Oxford, these young men began to have prayer meetings within this country, this, the College of Oxford. And uh, as they had these prayer meetings, they called themselves the Holiness Movement, uh, which was, the word is Methodist. So they said that we're the, we are the Methodist Movement, which means holiness, vice versa. And so they began to have this holy move, movement. And when they got all through and they got graduated from Oxford, they would give them what was called a parish, which was a church in England, you know, a church, a church you know, the past, pastorship. So you have a pastorship. They'd say, okay, you, John, you go there. Whitfield, you go over there and uh, start preaching. You know, in that church, you're now the pastor of that church. You're a guy right out of, you know, Oxford. You're qualified and so forth. Well, those fellows would get in the church and then start preaching the holiness. They'd say, you guys got to quit living in sin like you are. You got to quit living like the devil. The people, you got to straighten up. You got to live right. You're going to be lost out if you don't. You got you to live right and everything. And they said, hey, hey, you better send us another pastor. This guy here is just too strong for us, you know. And so Wesley just couldn't hold a pastor like that. And finally, uh, they said, don't you know that all the whole world's against you? Uh, John Wesley, he said, so what? I'm against the whole world. He said, the world is my parish. So he went out and started preaching in the streets, started preaching. He'd go down where the coal miners would come out of the coal bins, out of the coal, the coal, the caves, you know, whatever you call them, tunnels. And they would come out in Wales and they'd have this black soot all over their face, you know, and everything. And these are not African-Americans. Now, these were just, you know, regular English people. 
and they'd come out and they were white complexion. They spent all their life just about back in there, you know, cutting coal. And their face would just be black with that coal dust. And they'd come out and he would be ready for them and he'd start preaching to them. And before they'd go anywhere, they'd stop and listen to him and hear him preach. And he said, I would watch for a white streak to go down their cheek, cheek like this. I'd see a white streak start. And I'd see another one. Then I'd see another one. White streak. Tears. You know what I'm talking about. Tears running out their eyes as he preached the word of God to them. And he said, when I saw the first one reach the chin and a tear drop, he said, I gave him all to Paul and everything. And John Wesley began, began to convert all of these people and everything. And pretty soon he had his own peoples and they were called the Methodists. And forget the Church of England. You know, he just started doing his own thing. He one time came to America and pastored in Savannah, Georgia. Anybody ever been to Savannah, Georgia? There's a church there. There's a church there that he pastored for some time. Then he went back to England because his ministry was mostly there. George Whitfield, George Whitfield was the greatest orator that ever lived. He could speak to 20,000 people without any kind of, of a PA system. And they tested him on that. I have a, a book written by, well, it's the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And he came to America while Benjamin Franklin was still living. And he preached to the American people, George Whitfield did, in Philadelphia. And, uh, and uh, Benjamin Franklin being a scientific-minded person, he wasn't interested so much in the gospel that was being preached as the, the fascination he had with this guy's ability to preach to large crowds. And so in his own book, and I have the book, in his own autobiography, Benjamin Franklin describes him getting at the end of a huge crowd. He tells how many there were, and him backing up and backing up and backing up seeing how far back he would have to go before he could no longer hear George Whitfield preach. And he, got, he said, I got backed up to the river, and when I could go no further, I could still hear him clearly preaching the gospel. And I'm just trying to say here today that God began to use these people, folks, and these were praying men. They were praying men, you know. Uh, they introduced what God revealed to them and showed them that had to change, something that had to be a little bit different. And I'm just saying for all of us, thank God for the truth we have. You know, there's been a big price paid for these things. And what we have, we ought to cherish it with all of our heart. Uh, you know, I, I know that everybody's not perfect. And I know these denominations are not perfect. You know, the Pentecostal movement, as you know, came out of the Methodist, the Methodist crowd, most of them, not all of them. But they came from the Methodist group. But God began to work with them and they went from different places and during this time that inquisition in the early part of this that inquisition of spain began to spread now not just to the jews but it was to all of these protestants who were breaking away from the catholic church and i was in belgium when in a castle went down into the basement of it and they said we want to show you this and they had in the basement of that castle they had all of the torture machines and they still had them in in there you know and uh, my son and I were there together. We walked around and looked at the machines where they'd stretch you out. Uh, they did all kind of horrible things. I don't even want to tell you about how horrible some of them were, you know. They'd put things in their mouths and open their mouths and then pour stuff down their mouths, you know, down their throats. And, and uh, it, just the torture to try to make you to say, I denounce Jesus Christ or I denounce my faith in God, you know. And that still happens in the world today. And there are some people that go through that, you know. 
That's why that we dare not become Laodicea. In America, we, we cannot become Laodicea. You know what Laodicea is? You know, you're lukewarm. We just, we're not cold, we're not hot. We're just, you know, like this, you know. We're docile. Uh, but the Lord would have us, praise the Lord, to be on fire for him. And we get that by being well, praying people and talking to God and, and going to church. I'm preaching to the choir here. God bless you for being in the house of God today. There's a lot of places you could have been and, and gone, but you chose to come to the house of God. God bless you for that. But I just want to say here that you and I today, as the people of God, we need to be strong for the Lord. I'm serious. And if there's ever been a day or an hour where it could look like everything is just rosy and everything is wonderful and everything is just flowing along, actually it's a time whenever Satan is making head, you know, headway uh, into a lot of our ways of life. And uh, God wants you and I to stand for truth, stand up for the word of God, stand for holiness, stand for righteousness, stand for the truth of God, praise the Lord, and say, God, we're going to walk with you and we're going to serve you, Lord, and become a praying people. Be a people of holiness. That's of God. God said, be you holy for I am holy. Praise the Lord. We need to be holy, you know. You don't need to be wicked and, you know, be in the bars on a Saturday night and then be in church on a Sunday morning. You know, that's, that's, that's not of God, you know. We just need to really walk with the Lord and serve God and love him with all of our heart. And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And when God's love by the Holy Ghost, the whole love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And when that Holy Ghost sheds his love in our hearts, it causes you to love other people. Amen. Amen. It does. It causes you to love other people. Even people, that's your enemies. They'll cause you to love them because that's the Holy Spirit within us. And I'm just saying that God wants us to be a special people in these last days, folks. Who knows what God is going to call upon us to do and be in these last days that we might be the people of the name here in these last days before his coming. The Lord's coming soon. I don't know how long. But before he comes, he may allow us, amen, to be tested on a few things. Whatever it is, we want to say, Lord, we love you. We're going to walk with you. We're going to trust you with all of our heart. Would you stand with me right now and let's just lift our hands and worship God and let's praise him and thank him right now. Lord Jesus, we love you, God, and we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your precious promises. We ask you to bless everybody in this congregation, bless our morning service. God, we thank you, Lord, for all that you mean to us. Thank you for truth and salvation. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Remain standing, if you would, as our musicians come at this time. God bless you.